This is episode 235 of the Stem Cell Podcast, New Therapies for Degenerative Disease with Dr. Lorenz Studer. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review, please. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have an icon and a true leader of the field, Dr. Lorenz Studer, my neighbor at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's on the podcast to talk about his research exploiting recent advances in stem cell biology to develop radically new therapies for degenerative disease and cancer. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind everybody about the upcoming ISSCR 2023 annual meeting taking place in Boston, as well as virtually from June 14th to June 17th. Early registration closes March 8th and advanced registration closes April 12th. Dale and I, and really the whole Stem Cell Podcast team, are going to be attending the meeting in person, just like we did last year, and we hope to see you there. We'll uh, get things started by talking about a paper coming from the Allen Institute in Washington and Seattle. Um, it's a really, really fascinating big data set nature paper uh, titled Integrated Intracellular Organization and its Variations in Human IPS Cells. We've actually had some folks from the Allen Institute uh, for Cell Science not too long ago on the podcast. We had Rukuna Wardane, actually. You know, uh, they have these really cool reporter IPS lines that I actually use in my own lab for, for my own research, where they uh, they can tag a different protein in these IPSCs and with the fluorescent protein, GFP, RFP, and you can see how different cellular proteins are organized in iPSCs. I use it to study cardiomyocyte differentiation. They have these really cool reporter GFP cardiomyocytes, which are fun to look at and also really uh, powerful for looking at cell contractility. But that's just one of the, the cell lines that they have. And like I said, they have close to, I think, 50 of these guys now. And, you know, in addition to just being a cool resource for the community in itself, these cell lines, they're uh, ultimately wanting to do a study like this, which is, you know, looking at all the different intracellular proteins and iPSCs using the fluorescent lines, and then ultimately getting a, a really high resolution understanding of cellular organization. And that's kind of the the culmination. This is this paper is the culmination of that work. So they want to understand how subsets of expressed genes are dictating cellular phenotypes. Okay, this is a something that anybody, everybody is trying to understand in the stem cell field. And there's a billion different proteins out there, a lot of different organelles out there, and it's it'll be really interesting to kind of get a map of how cells are organized. And iPSCs are just one cell type, and it's in some ways it's an artificial cell type. But we can genetically modify them really easily, as we know, these, these fluorescent tags and all that. So here, they reduce the complexity of all that, all the different proteins, the organelles, by really just focusing on the organization itself. itself. And they generated this WTC11 iPSC single cell image data set. One thing to mention, of course, with all these data set papers, big data set papers, it's really important to have this data set be accessible to the general community. And it is, and you can access it and mess around with it um, you know, on your own too. So this single cell imaging data set V1, which I'm assuming there's going to be a V2 at some point, uh, contains more than 200,000 live cells, iPSCs, in 3D spanning 25 C, you know, uh, key cellular structures marked by these fluorescent reporter lines. And it's just a, a vast, gigantic imaging data set um, that allows you to look at cell-to-cell -cell variability in iPSCs because the background population of these iPSCs, it's all the same, right? Theoretically, they're all clonal from this WTC11, but they actually show that they're even within the the clonal population itself, there's a lot of variability in cell shape and cell size. The other cool part of this though, even though there is variability in cell shape and cell size, if you look into the cells themselves, the iPSCs, the overall organization of the organelles in the cells is pretty consistent. 
So they made a really, I think, a good analogy of, of an apartment building, right? Say there's a big apartment building in Manhattan or something, and there's like hundreds and hundreds of different apartments, and they all have different sizes somewhat, and those apartments are equivalent to a cell. But the furniture inside those apartments is arranged in the exact same way. So like the coffee table, it's in the northeast part of the apartment, no matter which apartment in the building um, that coffee ta table is located. That's the analogy that they're trying to make that across all these different IPSCs, the organelles are kind of located in the same place. And I think that's really fascinating. They you know, kind of are distilling down these things, these organization principles into IPSCs, but it makes me wonder how are other cell types organized as well? And if this is consistent across the board. So I'm a big fan of these big data set papers. It's a really nice resource for the community and, you know, just a lot of fun to look at. Yeah, for me, that was a big surprise too. You know, biology, the whole system is predicated on noise, essentially. So to see that there is con some consistency there in the organelle placement, I think tells you a lot, although I don't know what that means. Uh, I think it's really compelling but for me, really, I mean, it was just the 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 amount of work that was done for this paper that was so impressive. And and I, you know, I got to hand it to Rue because, you know, she's not senior author on this paper, but she's played a large part. And we've spoken with her about this. And I'm really pleased to see that this has really come to fruition with such an expansive paper. I mean, 200,000 cells. There's about 200,000 authors, too. And that's a testament to how many people had to contribute to this work. So I'm very impressed. And this is one of those papers that, you know, is going to get cited a million times because uh, there's just so many uh, t touchstones there uh, to, to build off of uh, springboards for discovery. So uh, congratulations to the group there at the Allen Institute. I, like you, have long uh, been watching their catalog of cells and ordered a few uh, for my own use. A really tremendous resource. Yeah, big time resource for the community, not just with the cells, but for this data set as well. And I'm just a big fan of having these things openly accessible to anybody who's hoping to look at cellular organization, right? And the next question, like I said, is taking this beyond IPSCs. IPSCs are everybody's favorite cell type in this show and people listening to this show. But how consistent are some of these findings to all the other hundreds of cell types that are found in the body? So that's maybe the next step. B2, I guess. I mean, yikes. When you see the proliferation of the single cell data sets with sequencing and all the omics, uh, I guess on the horizon is a similar correlative, expansive uh, single cell imaging. Um, but I don't know where we're going to find the storage for all that data, much less the eyes are the machine learning, I guess, to uh, analyze it. But uh, we'll probably come around to that in your next roundup story but before we get there i have a couple gut stories i'm going to get to one first and then another to tail end of the uh at the tail end of the roundup this one is about humanized mice and uh the limits of um these human intestinal organoids and surmounting them so you know the intestine it's actually the largest compartment of the immune system in the body most people wouldn't think uh but there's immune cells and this gut-associated lymphoid tissue that's regionally distributed across the mucosal layers and all along the length of the gut tube. Uh, and there's this immune epithelial crosstalk that's essential to intestinal homeostasis, defense against pathogens, also immunologic tolerance to di dietary components and the commensal bacteria, the so-called good bugs uh, that we need in our system for healthy digestion. Um, there's Mouse models, of course, that have been widely used to interrogate the biological mechanisms of intestinal immune tissue in development and disease. But there's obviously, I mean, I don't have to say this, substantial differences that prevent, you know, any kind of extrapolation, direct, uh, perfect extrapolation to human biology. I mean, we're not on the chow. We're actually much less healthy than the mice, I would, I would venture. Um, also, they in vitro cult culture of these human intestinal organoids with immune cells, as you might imagine, is not going to recapitulate the complexity that you find in vivo. So uh, this group, which was led by Michael Helmrath, uh, and on this paper also is Jamie Wells, they're all at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, the group had previously uh, transplanted in vitro pluripotent stem cell derived human intestinal organoids into immunocompromised mice. And they showed that these human intestinal organoids matured. 
Um, but the system lacked the developing immune cells, of course. Uh, there's no common progenitor with the human intestinal organoids and immune cells. Uh, that, and that, of course, led to a failure to recapitulate this gut immune interface, um, which you normally would see even at fetal stages in the intestine. So uh, this effort here uh, leveraged these humanized mice, and it's pretty straightforward. They, they did effectively the same thing they'd done before. Here they transplanted these human intestinal organoids under the kidney capsule of humanized mice. Those are mice that have been engineered to have a human immune system. And what they found is that human immune cells migrated to mucosa and formed these cellular aggregates that were similar to human intestinoid lymphoid follicles. And importantly here, after microbial exposure, there was this immune cell activation, which was indicated by secretion of IgA antibodies into the human intestinal organoid lumen. So, I mean, that's it. They did what they did before, except they did in humanized mice. And but the the payoff here is big because it opened up opens up the field to modeling this unique aspect of the gut, which is the immune interface there, which nowadays is hugely relevant and popular and emerging as a, a major driver of, of health and disease in, in our population. So I, I think this is a big deal and is is going to pretty much establish a robust platform for modeling this gut immune interface and clearly just the foundation for many papers to come. Yeah, another tool in a way, just like what we talked about for the last paper, not a computational tool, but an actual mouse model that could be really useful for studying the the, the gut interface and the, the role of the gut in modulating immune function. I mean, it's not something you think about a lot. It's definitely not something I think about a lot. But yeah, it's a definitely a very important model. It also is a reflection again on the importance of the niche and helping to mature some of these you know, systems. You know, the getting these organoids placed into a correct humanized mouse model is taking them to the next level. The other thing, I was just looking at some of the figures. I didn't realize how big these HIOs, these you know, in, in intestinal organoids actually are. It's like a centimeter big. That's gigantic. It was showing that it's almost uh it's bigger than the the mouse kidney itself so that's that's pretty dramatic right there and yeah i mean definitely a, a powerful system here for interrogating immune function and excited to see where this goes yeah and i think this is maybe the first of a spate of stories i mean the the gut immune inf interface is really popular and and at the height of of, of uh, investigation nowadays but um you know, there's a lot of other organs where the immune system presumably plays a part. My only question, this is a thought experiment uh, that I've been batting around and someone will probably tell me I'm, I'm a fool for even considering it. But if you have a mouse that's been humanized, then that has a unique, you know, complement. Cells that are CD34 positive, hematopoietic uh, stem progenitor cells are transplanted to this mouse. But then if you transplant another human tissue type from a different genetic background, I wonder uh, why there isn't like an immune rejection. Uh, and someone's going to have mm. to talk me through that. But um, needless to say, in this case, uh, they by showing activation of these immune cells and the secretion of IgA into the lumen, this wasn't like any kind of immune graft versus host reaction. This seemed like true uh, activity of immune cells in the gut. So someone will have to explain that to me about why that's not the case, the organ rejection. In this case, it worked regardless. So again, a platform for, for building a, a lot of uh, study and also, uh, I think, applying it, as I said, to other cell types that may be, uh, there may be some interest in how they interact with the immune cells in, in their endogenous niche. So a lot here to unpack and a lot of future studies to come from this. Very exciting. That is actually a fascinating idea. I was, when you were saying that, I was actually, I was like, whoa, that makes a bunch of sense. And it almost seems like you have a passion for the blood system. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought, Dalen? So moving on to, to something that I have a passion for, obviously, the heart, you know, cardiomyocytes, all that good stuff. Uh, I'm going to talk about a cell stem cell paper, which is going in line with um, the previous paper that I talked about in the roundup, the first one. It's This is another machine learning, big data set approach, um, less on the IPS level, but more on the differentiated cells, in this case, cardiomyocytes. This is coming from the Stanford Cardiovascular Institute, we're actually trained back in the day, uh, from the lab of Mark Mercola, who's really an expert on 
high throughput screening, drug screening. Uh, as way back in the day, he was he still is a phenomenal fundamental cardiac biologist, but he has really evolved his lab over time and has really adapted some of these big data set approaches, high throughput screening approaches, and IPS cardiomyocytes in in tremendous fashion. So the title of the paper is again a cell stem cell paper. A deep learning platform to assess drug proarrhythmia risk. This is a really important topic in the area of IPS cardiomyocytes, which is, of course, the, the cell type that I work with. We've wanted to know for a long time how predictive are these cells in actually predicting clinical phenotypes, right? So we're, we've been able to do this for decades, you know, making IPSCs, IPS cardiomyocytes from different patients with or without arrhythmias, heart rhythm problems, right? And if it's a person with a genetic heart rhythm problem, you can reproduce that same heart rhythm problem in a dish, okay? Now, the next step is to, to take those data sets and create a ton of those data sets looking at the contraction waveforms, the electrophysiology of these IPS cardiomyocytes in a dish, and then being able to put that into a black box and then spitting it out on the other side of the black box is a prediction, predicting who will or will not be susceptible to either a drug-induced arrhythmia or an arrhythmia because of their genetic background, all right? That's the dream for IPS cardiomyocyte disease, uh, drug screening and disease modeling is being able to predict using the in vitro system, being able to predict clinically who's going to have some of these problems for arrhythmia and so on. And that's really what they were doing here. Um, they are they were creating a ton of IPS cardiomyocytes, um, either from control or from folks with a genetic background that makes them susceptible to a, a pretty lethal arrhythmia called Trissard Dupont. And they inserted the giant data set that they generated from electrophysiological waveforms that they got from these IPS cardiomyocytes into like a neural network, a machine learning approach. And on the other side, they were able to, yes, determine which um, waveforms, which IPS cardiomyocytes would be associated with the clinical problem. And that's great. That's the the hope that we're hoping to to get to, you know, with, with these cells. So these deep learning approaches can identify these in vitro arrhythmic features that can actually correlate with clinical arrhythmia. And also, again, there's a genetic background component to the study too, and also predict the influence of patient genetics on the risk of drug-induced arrhythmia. So, you know, this is this is great for me. I mean, this is exactly kind of what I hope to do and want to do in the future. And this is a really exciting paper for, for me in particular, in part because you know, on, on this paper are folks that I know really well from the Stanford Cardiovascular Institute. But this is what we're hoping to do long-term with IPSCs and IPSC cardiomyocytes in a dish. And the next step is really how well can clinical entities or drug companies, pharma, start adapting these approaches to predict drug toxicity or predict people who are going to get arrhythmias because of drugs, right? Um, and this is, a I think, a milestone paper in in getting to that next step. Yeah, Arun, I don't think it's going to take long. I, like most people, or many people at least, have been messing around with the chat GPT and the Dolly image generator. <laughs> and, you know, it's all fun. And of course, there's limitations. But, you know, the deep learning as it applies to science seems to be a whole new world. And really what I'm impressed with is not you know, the limited function of the chat GPT and the Dolly and stuff like that. It's the the pace of advance. You know, they come out with the Dolly and then three months later they have the V2. And then, you know, it won't be long before the V3. And it's really leaps and bounds above the previous version. So when you look at a paper like this, you're like, okay, the deep learning is fully now in our field. Um, and the next version of this, whatever you want to call it, generative AI or, or deep learning approaches, like, are they going to be able to reach a level of resolution or discovery that is, you know, a, a order of magnitude above this one. I don't think that's out of the question. And when you're looking that deeply in a system and seeing things that are really beyond our capacity to observe, recognize, analyze, appreciate, uh, you got to wonder, at what point are we just going to be, you know, window dressing? Do we need scientists at all, Arun? 
we're getting very philosophical here. I'm, I'm just happy to have a job right now in this age of AI. But I mean, one thing we have harped on in the past is, yeah, I mean, yeah, chat GPT, all these machine learning approaches are great, but the limitation is in the training data set. So the training data set for whatever machine learning approach you're doing, whether it's predicting drug toxicity with IPS cardiomyocytes, the, the training data set has to be good. And we've said this before, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you don't have a good training data set, then your prediction algorithm is going to be totally off. And so props to the Mercola lab and the folks at the Cardiovascular Institute for getting this right. I mean, they got a good training data set. And that's why I think on the other side, the prediction side, the the predictions were good. And, you know, with chat GPT, you know, I, I think it's awesome. I, I know everybody's playing around with it. I will say that I've never been able to actually log on to it because anytime I've tried to access the website, it's crashed or has said, oh, our servers are overloaded. So maybe they can use machine learning to fix that problem. I don't know. Yeah. Well, they got a $20 version now that gives you priority in line. Oh, so yeah. you got to pay up now. They're trying to monetize it. But um, as you're saying that garbage in, garbage out thing, I was reminded of this story of the AI online that was like native and then ultimately being trained by, as you would expect, Reddit or whatever. Uh, these forums are became like virulently racist, misogynist. So like, yes, uh, garbage in, garbage out. And you got to appreciate the limitations of these things. You're going to have a bunch of AI Nazis running around. But I just wonder if the same kind of thing might happen with science. You get some kind of kooky results getting shot out once in a while. Um, I guess that's why we still have a job, Arun, is somebody's got to verify and corroborate all this work. <laughs> we need some hands out there in the world still. Thanks, God, for that. Um, moving on, I'm staying in the gut. You know, this is my gut show. Going with my gut. Um, this is a story from, you know, like Lorenz, who's about to come in. in. In the era at the beginning of stem cells, there was Conrad Hokedlinger. When we were still talking about somatic cell nuclear transfer and all that stuff, how are we going to get stem cells in mass? Conrad Hokedlinger was doing his thing, um, and he's still doing his thing. He, he's been working on SOX2 forever, and this is another story in that vein. But uh, I would say he's also opening up a whole new line of inquiry here uh, in the gut. And uh, I'll get to that. You know, as I said, the, the gut and the immune system. So you got a little background. The gut's big. Um, and within the stomach, there's a, a bunch of these epithelial glands, right, that contain the specialized cells that are responsible for a lot of the functions. I talk about all the immune functions. but There's also the other, all the other gut functions, barrier formation, digestion, the nutrient sensing and hormone production, right? There's another interface between the brain and the gut and the body and the gut. The gut's everywhere. Um, and there's these gastric cell types uh, that are ubiquitous, like mucus producing cells. They're throughout the stomach epithelium. But there's other cell types that are enriched in one of two major glandular compartments that are called the corpus and the antrum. All right. So the corpus glands are enriched for the acid producing parietal cells and the pepsinogen producing cells. So pepsinogen in the in the presence of acid converts to pepsin, which enables protein breakdown. So those are the kind of digestive, the digestive compartment there in the corpus glands. And by contrast, the, the antral glands are enriched for these hormone-producing enteroendocrine cells. So classic label retention experiments have shown that the differentiated cells of the corpus and the antrum are continuously replenished by multipotent stem cells that are centrally, loca centrally located in, in a region called the isthmus. Um, and there's all other studies, uh, subsequent studies using Cree mice and Cree drivers that have identified uh, multipotent cells in uh, a region called the gland base. Okay, so a little bit of background there. And you know, in recent years, since since the advent of single cell seek, there's been a ton of seek, uh, all kinds of single cell omics used to molecular categorize all the many epithelial cells in the gut. Um, and that's been great. You know, you get a nice framework for comparing, contrasting all the different cell types, but, you know, that doesn't really give you an understanding of how the immature, mature gastric epithelial cell populations in both of these compartments, the corpus and antrum, particularly in these two regions, the isthmus and the gland base, how they relate to one another, right? So as I'm saying this, everyone's probably thinking about the initial organoid, right? These intestinal stem cells, the seminal discovery from Clevers, 
where if you embed these gastric glands in matrodel, you get this indefinite expansion. You get these gut organoids, intestinal organoids, which you know many careers have been built on, um, and that's really built on this LGR5 expressing stem cell, right? This intestinal stem cell. Um, but that's in uh, that's a gland-based cell, right? Uh, in contrast, those isthmus, isthmus, that's a tough one, isthmus stem cells <laughs> uh, have not uh, really been defined in 3, 3D cultures or even identified. So everyone's sweating the gland-based cells and talking about LGR5 and Hans Clevers and making these organoids. But these isthmus stem cells have been, you know, put on the shelf, so to speak, um, which makes it tough to actually compare uh, and contrast what is the difference between these two regions, the gland base and the isthmus stem cells. So Conrad, uh, doing what he does, he developed this pretty straightforward, it's a monolayer. So going back to the future here, a monolayer 2D culture system um, that's maintained by these Wnt responsive, so similarly Wnt-driven uh, self-renewal, but identifies these isthmus-like stem cells that are capable of differentiating into multiple gastric cell types. Also, importantly, as you can imagine, with everyone thinking about organoids these days, the 2D cultures can also be converted to 3D organoids. Um, and they ultimately, in terms of mechanism, getting these, getting this paper into nature cell, biology, uh, they use the 2D culture system to show that SOX2, and there it is. Conrad's been working on SOX2 for about two decades now. He shows that SOX2 is both necessary and sufficient to generate these enterochromaffin cells, okay? And the enterochromaffin cells are the cells that mediate serotonin release. So the happy cells in the gut, very important population if you're talking about, you know, everyone's pumping Ozempic nowadays, but uh, when we talk about satiety and all these, uh, you know, maybe lifestyle drugs, but also real clinical need, the enterochromaffin cells are an essential cell type of study. So I think a big story from Hokudlinger's lab, uh, which establishes this new stem cell system. I mean, the gut has been cultured to death, but this is a new cell type in the gut that has been kind of corralled. Uh, in vitro. And I think that's a big deal. And also the mechanism and showing that SOX2 is essential and identifying uh, or self-renewing and uh, source of these enterochromaffin cells that could be really a uh, fertile ground for study and translational science. Isthmus, isthmus, isthmus. I'll say it three times fast. But yeah, I mean, this is something that Conrad's been working on for a long time now, SOX2. It also makes me reflect on the importance of SOX2, you know, as a as a transcription factor, as a gene and regulating so many different types of functions. It's one of those genes like the GATA family, which has so many different roles. We think about SOX2 and the Yamanaka factors and the pluripotency network and all that, but also important for gastric specification as well. And the other thing is like you harped on, like you mentioned, 2D is not dead, okay? 2D is not dead. Monolayer, monolayer is not dead. There's still an application for it. And uh, folks are still using 2D cultures. We're not all going to organoids these days. Bringing it back, the 2D culture. I'm sure Lorenz will tell you something about 2D. You know, the initial studies with neural induction and a dish, that's the great thing about neural. It's really amenable to 2D culture, monolayer culture. Maybe we can chat a bit about that with him. But before we get there, I've got a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. As research using pluripotent stem cells advances toward the clinic, there is a renewed focus on cell quality. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, everybody, in today's episode, we have a very special guest to myself and to you all, a neighbor from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he is director and founder of the Center for Stem Cell Biology, Dr. Lorenz Studer. The Studer Lab aims at exploiting recent advances in stem cell biology to develop radically new therapies for degenerative disease and cancer. The projects in the lab involve directing the fate and age of human pluripotent stem cells, modeling human disease, and developing cell-based therapies. Lorenz, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Very glad to be here. Seen, you, seen this podcast develop, I think, from many, many years ago, actually. 
some of it coming from our own lab at the time, <laughs> all the way to what you guys are doing now, which is actually quite amazing. So excited to be here. Thank you for the praise. And yes, it did begin from your lab with Drs. Yosef Ganak <laughs> and Christopher Fasano. I'm glad you mentioned that. All praise to those two who set us on this path. Arun, why don't you get us started with this interview? Totally. And thanks for advocating for us through all these years, Dr. Studer. And you've been, of course, one of the pioneers in using pluripotent stem cells for modeling and treating all kinds of neurodegenerative diseases, ranging from Parkinson's to ALS and musculoskeletal disease as well. And there's no doubt that we've, of course, come a long, long way in 20 years. And 20 years ago, I think it was considered just a victory just to be able to make certain kinds of neural cell types from pluripotent stem cells. And here we are now getting ready to transplant stem cell-derived neurons into people in clinical trials. And you know, we'll get to the, the Blue Rock applications and the clinical applications of your work in a little bit. But could you take us back to the start? You know, we're talking about going back in time a little bit. What was your motivating factor first for first actually getting into the stem cell field and the neurogenerative modeling field in the first place? And could you just reflect on how far we've come? Sure. I mean, that goes really far, far back, I guess. When I was kind of a medical student back in Switzerland, you no, know, and actually started on the cell therapy side. It was kind of the time, now initially I thought I would do completely different stuff, become a physician and so forth, particularly interested in neurology, but then really coming across kind of a crazy, somewhat crazy neurosurgeon, I guess, which fascinated me to have the idea to really put cells back into the brain. And actually, again, this work that was done in Sweden, he was working in Sweden for a while himself, Christian Spenger, he kind of attracted me you now to think about this idea further. And actually at that time, now we didn't really know much about stem cells, so at that time, we plucked them out just from developing human fetal tissue. That was kind of the early stages. And I mean, we went over a period of maybe, I would say, three, four years you now from the ID and doing those studies to actually grafting the first patient in Switzerland using those fetal cells. And so that was really exciting. But it was also a little bit frustrating because it's clear that this approach is not really going to hold, hold the water basically long term now because it's just too difficult to get the fetal tissue even beyond the ethical concerns you might have, it's just not scalable. Then I was thinking, you know, what to do? And just at that time, that was like in the mid nineties or so, was the discussion about stem cells and what you can do with it. Two cell papers, so some neural stem cells that can make neurons. And thought really, let's go after that. And then that was really the start for me. And then the rest is really a long story now going first. Trying to do that is neural stem cells going around Mackay's lab at DNH. With some success, you now we had some nice stories expanding midbrain neural stem cells, make dopamine neurons and rescuing some models, but that's still not scalable enough. And so when I decided, or when I got my own lab, no, that was kind of this watershed moment, should I just optimize those midbrain neural stem cells and eventually maybe try to get it to the clinic? Or should I maybe take the more ambitious road and just design neurons from scratch completely? And that was really then the idea. And I was lucky, you know, already in Ron's lab, was one of the first places where they differentiated mouse embryonic stem cells into neurons. And that's where I got hooked. And the rest is really history. You now, once I figured out how that works, that was just a fascinating field that you can recreate the conditions to make pretty much any cell type of the brain or beyond. And, and that's really how the story started with, with, with me getting into the stem cell field. Yeah. yeah and I mean, having been having started my scientific career around that time, soon after the, the early derivation of human embryonic stem cells, I can say a big part of that was the controversy, right? I mean, you went from fetal cells, which is still steeped in controversy, uh, to embryonic stem cells, which was even more so at the time. And since then, that has kind of been quelled, thanks to Yamanaka and others. Um, but yeah, it's been controversial, exciting, inspiring, listening to you talk about, it, I can see the enthusiasm and hear it in, in your voice and see it on your face. Uh, but, you know, it's also been a quarter decade long grind. Uh, that's for sure. And, and you, amongst the many contributors, have really endured. Uh, when I think of all the big names that have moved the field over these years, many have blazed really brightly and kind of faded, uh, while you and the promise of your work continue the ascent. I have to confess myself, I once thought that cell therapy in the brain would be among the last targets to pan out. And here we are with clinical trials ongoing. So I have to ask, what, what's the secret 
to your success here in this case? Do you think the brain is uniquely suited to regenerative therapies, something I would have never imagined? Is it the team at MSK and our Blue Rock? Is it having a neurosurgeon for a spouse? Come on, tell us what's the secret. I think it's a little bit of a combination of all of the above now. So and that's, it clearly was not an easy trip. You know, you also have to be extremely stubborn. <laughs> and I tend to be a little bit stubborn you now when I put my goal on something, I really try to get there. I think I told this story once now when I gave the, the, the lecture at the last ISSCR. No, but the guy who hired me at Sloan Cutting actually asked me now what, what is going to be your achievement 10 or 15 years down the road. No, that was kind of the watershed. Where should I go? And I told him, no, I would like, obviously, in a, in a very optimistically, no, cured Parkinson's disease, or, and or basically trying to figure out all the things to make all the cell types of the nervous system. <laughs> so this is kind of this, obviously, completely over ambitious, unrealistic goals, but those goals kind of have still driven me today. And I think what happens then in science is just, yes, you try to focus on the goals, but you have a lot, a lot of failure. And for me, the failures were actually, in a way, in hindsight, not at the time, <laughs> But in hindsight, kind of a lot of fun because when I made the wrong cell, now I want to make dopamine, you want to make a whole bunch of other stuff. I got neurotrest, I got sometimes even muscle cells popping out and all kinds of stuff. Now, I mean, you're wondering what's going on here, you know about the signals and can you actually harness that? And then it becomes step-by-step step a logic and you can really build the whole thing. And so I was very stubborn on making kind of the lineage tree and making the right cells. But then, as you said, you really need a good team to have that. And I think Sloan Kettering is quite unique, but you can take things way beyond just, just doing things in your own lab. Where you have some of the best academic GMP facilities. Now you have people with expertise in taking things to the clinic. I was fortunate to do this work at the time, and nice times still existed and went strong. Yeah. Now we've got a big grant from them to do it. So you have to have a little bit of luck in timing that everything comes together. And you need to have a great team and you need to be persistent, I think. Yeah, it's good advice. I think there's no one variable that is the, the perfect answer. You have to have that luck. You have to have that ambition, that drive, the good team. All these things kind of pump together in that melting pot to, to lead to success, right? But you've been focused on neurodegenerative diseases for, for a while, as you mentioned, and in particular Parkinson's has been such a focal point of your research for more than 20 years. And you mentioned the work that you did during your training as well in terms of you know the generation of dopamine cells and the the primary cell type that's affected in Parkinson's, which of course really, you know, above all else has such a sad and dev devastating prognosis for the patients. And there's so much work that needs to happen in, in improving the lives of these people. But, you know, we've come a long way, as we've talked about through throughout this this interview, you know, just from making the cells, to actually now translating to some of the discoveries as well. And we'll talk about Blue Rock in a bit. But in terms of the hurdles, the things that we still need to figure out before clinical translation and, and Parkinson's in particular can be commonplace and when it comes to cell therapy, what are the biggest hurdles remaining for, for cell therapy for Parkinson's? And what do we need to perfect and address before this therapy can become commonplace? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe you can even touch on both issues. No, I think I neglect a little bit the cell, the, the cell and disease modeling part, which I think is also very important. I think there are challenges in both areas. And with regard to cell therapy, I think the main challenge on one hand is perfecting it to make it really a routine procedure. So, I mean, right now we, we started a phase one study and we might talk more about that, but you need to have something that can not only go into a clinical trial, but that could actually become a widespread commercial product. I think this for me, that's when we thought about cell therapy, we tried to design it from the beginning something that's scalable for example what that meant is you wanted to make it off the shelf which gives you some challenges with regard to for example what are you going to do about immune suppression so we still have situation where we transiently immunosuppress patients and i think that's one of the challenges for the future that we want to solve know that this is not even transiently necessary to do and there's a number of approaches that this could work universal cell technologies and so forth so that's one challenge the other challenge is I think for me, at least on the, on the science side now, do we really have the perfect cell? So in the lab now, you can say I've worked only 20 years, now it's going to the clinic, I should be happy. Mm. In a way we continue, you know, can you make them even better? Can you make the right subtype? Can we get them to survive better? And so you have a whole bunch of strategy, which we call kind of version 2.0, that I would love to eventually bring to the clinic. And then it gets interesting you now to see 
can you actually translate that to the clinic if you already have a product that's hopefully at some point successful? Can you make even a following product that's like going to be competitive? And so there's all kinds of issues there that I think that are going to be interesting to consider. I think the much bigger challenge in cell therapy is Parkinson's not just dopamine neuron loss. And so I think what I'm really kind of a little bit obsessed now, maybe for the next 10 years, what's the big goal is really what can you do about cognitive loss in the brain? So you have some ideas, but it's still very early, but we also think trying to work towards cell therapy in this area. I think that's really for cell therapy, that's some of the, the main things I see. But on, on the other hand, for disease modeling, I think it's also very interesting to think about, if we do a lot of disease modeling, maybe we even touch on too many <laughs> diseases that you mentioned. We definitely do them to all those neurodegenerative diseases. We have even some people looking at psychiatric diseases and you can say that's kind of crazy. You cannot study all those diseases, but we see it more from a stem cell perspective. No matter really the bottleneck, on the technology side. And if it's all of those, other labs, maybe our lab, but also other labs can take that forward and maybe maybe make a real impact. And I think there really, there's also a bunch of really interesting challenges. Obviously the one that we've obsessed been for the last five or 10 years is really this issue of maturation and age. Now, can you not only make the right neuron, a dopamine neuron, but can you make a neonatal one? Can you make an aged one, an 80 year old one? What are the signals for doing that? And the second part is really for modeling, you know, can you do it not just in one or two isogenic pairs of lines, but can you do it in hundreds of lines? So where we try to develop like pooled village type technologies. And maybe the third major challenge that we see right now is kind of how do we do by integrating all the critical cell types? Well, I think organizers still have to do that. Now in many patients across many things, but we try to kind of nearly learn from our cell therapy where we made very precise cell types, so precise that we dare to stick them into people's heads, but making them then in the right combinations. So you first make the individual cell types, put them back together in the right proportions, and that's an extremely scalable approach. I think these three areas, you now having the complexity of tissue that's needed, for example, to study neuroinflammation, studying it across maybe hundreds of patients to really get the genetics in, and studying it in the cell type that's the right age. Those are the three main technologies that we now try to gather into one package to kind of make the next generation disease modeling platform. And we kind of worked a little bit, chopped, chopped off pieces now at each of those three areas, but the long-term goal is really getting those together and really making it a much more routine approach. Wow, I mean, I could see the, the your gears working there. You've got the vision there for the future, the next 10 years of your lab. and. I think, I mean, what we're talking about here is all all the, these technical challenges, conceptual advances that surmount these hurdles. And while a lot of challenges remain, as you described, for me, it really feels like we're past the tipping point on the inevitability of stem cell-derived products going into people and a resultant real transformation in the way we treat disease. You know, the thing that we've been holding up for the public and talking about, you know, with stars and eyes all this year, it turns out, I mean, I feel like we're getting there. Uh, it's actually going to come true. Um, but I mean, while cell therapy, it's been around for a while on the form of bone marrow, cord blood transplant, something you're very familiar with, of course, as well at MSK. Um, I feel like a more reflective or a glimpse of the future that's more reflective of reality in terms of cell therapy with regenerative medicine it looks more like what we're seeing with these uh, treatments for sickle cell and other hematologic conditions, right? With the gene correction and a lot of cellular manipulations involved. And with all that intervention, the cure can get pretty expensive, right? And of course, the argument is that the savings over the life of the patient make this cost effective. And that's absolutely true. But what we're talking about here in one lump sum is millions of dollars per treatment, right? Do you, do you think the costs will be similar for regenerative therapies in the nervous system, at least in, in the in the short term, in, in the first run, 1.0 version, so to speak, as you said. Uh, and do you think that our medical insurance policy is going to be able to adjust to this new paradigm? I mean, forgive me, I know I'm, I'm getting you kind of outside of the box here. You're not a policy yeah. guy, but I know you've thought about it. And I'm sure those investors at Blue Rock are getting at you about it. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a little bit more of a policy question, at least to some extent. I mean, what we try to do on the science side is design the system that the costs could be lower. <laughs> like if, I mean, people talk about cost of goods, you know, how much does it cost to just simply make the cells? 
that doesn't take into account the years of development, the many animal studies, optimism, but once you actually have a product, how expensive is the product? Now, if you make a CAR T cell for every individual patient, just simply making the product might cost you $100,000 or so on. So it's, it's just very expensive, difficult to scale. That's something we try to avoid. With dopamine neurons, you just need a few millions max. And to make those few millions in theory would really not be that expensive. But then again, how that's going to be calculated in, I think it's going to be a compass of it's kind of a, a decision among the, the, the payers, the patients, and, and society. You know, what are you willing to, to pay for it? And I think that's really, I think, a very challenging question from my perspective. You know, it's, it's always nice I, that I'm still an academician primarily. You know, I have. Even so, I co-founded Blue Rock. I don't really have any official position there, so I can still think more as an academician. And I obviously would love to get this technology to be used as widely as possible. And so I would be glad you know, if the cost can be kept much lower than some of those therapies that you mentioned. Now, where it's one million, some of them are up to two or three million a shot. But I know there needs to be a balance of those issues. So again, I don't have a completely satisfactory answer, but I think the only part that we can easily contribute to that is at least design the strategy such that it doesn't need to be ridiculously expensive, that it's scalable and that you could basically yeah, make it cheaper and cheaper the more routinely it gets used. Yeah, I think it's a question that every single cell therapy company is dealing with right now, whether it's in the stem cell field or, or otherwise. And, you know, of course, like you mentioned, you're the scientific co-founder of Blue Rock Therapeutics, which is really a startup that's in the spotlight right now in the stem cell therapy field. We actually had a friend of yours, Stefan Arian, senior VP of research at Blue Rock here on the show not too long ago. And it's impressive. It's really impressive that the progress that Blue Rock is making and using pluripotent stem cells and really rigorous clinical trials for a bunch of different degenerative diseases and actually not just neurodegenerative, but also cardiac diseases as well. And obviously I'm interested in that as a cardiac biologist. I mean, Blue Rock's portfolio includes that phase one trial for Parkinson's disease using iPS-derived dopaminergic neurons to, loss, to replace lost neurons in Parkinson's. And I mean, some of the results were actually discussed at the most recent ISSCR annual meeting too. And like you just mentioned, you're first and foremost an academic scientist, but this phenotype of crosstalk between industry and academia, it's its so commonplace now, and I think perfectly exemplified by the, the work that you're doing and the work that's been translated at Blue Rock. So talk a little bit about what it's like working so closely with the, like a major stem cell biotech as an academic scientist, as a founder. And if you take us back, how did you know when the time was right to actually you know, pursue something like Blue Rock to actually co-found something like Blue Rock. Because actually, I think this is a phenotype that's becoming more common, especially with the the younger generation of academic scientists, you know, who are potentially budding entrepreneurs and bio-entrepreneurs who want to do something like, like you did. So tell us about that moment in time when you decided to make this Blue Rock thing a reality. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I toyed for a long time you now with some of the commercial applications of stem cells. All the way going back to my postdoc years, I remember we had these discussions in the evening you know, at, the, at the bench or discussing with other colleagues who actually went on to start neural stem cell companies at the time. And I always found it's kind of too early. You know, we don't know exactly what to do with them. We don't have the technology ready and so forth. But when it came really to this dopamine neuron project, the key point was really we needed the support, something that really can bring it beyond the academic effort to the broader community, where I think it's going to be very, very tough to do that in any other way than starting a company. And also just simply practically, you know, we were running out in New York out of funding from NYSTEM. Our, we're very successful making basically GMP compliance cell lines, but we had nobody paying for the clinical trial. <laughs> so that was a bit of a problem. And I still remember you mentioned Stefan and, and, and obviously Mark Tomishima is the other partner in crime. You now we were thinking what to do at the time. I remember meetings Kind of was, I think, 2016 ISSCR meeting was with Stefan. We were there morning discussing things, and we, we didn't go much to ISSCR itself. We tried to chat to people now that they're interested in, in investing in the idea and basically putting things together. And we played with all kinds of models, you know, how maybe you license it out to an existing company, maybe you find some just dopamine company, or, or then again, maybe having something even more ambitious, but kind of dreaming like of the Genentech now. Of cell therapy at the time. Uh, and I think it was really Gordon Calder then, which is also a good colleague of mine, you know, that kind of 
knew about our efforts, we knew what he wanted to do, and we were kind of contacted by some people who really want to do something big in that space. And obviously we had to figure out, no, can we trust our, our financial colleagues there? So it was a bit of a, a learning curve, how you actually, not only they vet us and our idea, but how you vet them. But then it really became very quickly clear that that's an exciting idea. There's enough money around, know that you don't just need to raise money again every year. So you can really build towards something that really could last. And then I think we also made a, it was not me, but basically the CEO at that time, I think made also a good move with Bayer, particularly now in, where biotech is a bit more in trouble again, now getting really a lot of support through Bayer to really have now stable funding at a very large scale to take that forward. So I think we were again, lucky in time, but also again, have, having to be very persistent what you actually wanna see happening. But for me, that was really kind of a, a main thing. No, you don't wanna, some people obviously make many, many different companies and many different fields and so forth. And I think we actually try to maybe now start a new company on disease modeling, a little bit along the lines what I just mentioned before, it's called Takapo Neuroscience. And so might becomes much, much smaller. But on the cell therapy side, we thought we don't have this kind of one thing you now where we put our efforts in, maybe also new cell products. And I think I don't regret it. Now the, the, the issue there is obviously that once you do that and you build build such a big thing, or if it gets bigger and bigger, you kind of lose control to some extent. Now, luckily you trust the people. That's why it's great to have Stefan and Mark and all the people there. But you really don't know exactly know what's going to happen after some point, and they have licensed the technology and they take it forward. And so I compare it a little bit like, like when you, when you grow when you have a child growing up, no, because <laughs> it literally took us twenty years, you know, to get our child growing to become independent, send it to college, and in this time college is maybe going to the company and, and going beyond. No, where you kind of lose control a little bit, but they do. You still try to shape it, you give them big advice, but I don't think you have actually the control to micromanage things, which is probably a good thing. But but so I think yeah, you have kind of pros and cons, no, about this overall effort, but. We are clearly very excited now seeing the dopamine neuron effort develop. And I think you could never do that you now in an academic setting at that scale. And I think that's super exciting. And we hope it's going to stay like that and bring some of the other products along in a timely manner. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100% there about the scale thing. You can't imagine, you can't micromanage anything at that scale. You can't manage it as a, as a single individual or PI. And, and I got to say, I mean, that deal for I think a lot of stem cell biologists, I'm speaking for myself, but I bet for a lot of others as well, is a real inspiration. It's something to look toward. You know, it was such a big splash. And then the investment from Bayer, I think really reinforced and underscored the promise. It was a vote for stem cells at the highest possible level. And I think that uh, it's really, really moved the field, just, you know, the deal itself. Uh, but despite, you know, all that work leading the charge on the translational front, you're still pretty deep as you've continued to circle back on deep into the basic science. It's not enough that you set out to make every cell type in the nervous system. By the way, you're going to have to find some new cell types because you're running <laughs> out. Uh, but you also focus on a lot of these basic science mechanisms, pluripotency, stem cell metabolism, cellular age, maturation, as you said, and, and others. Um, and that takes a lot of work, right? With the considerable work that takes moving any drug, let alone cell therapy, into people. I mean, I know that's going on at Blue Rock and you're a little bit hands off there, but you're still pretty busy, I bet, with a lot of that stuff. And yet you still make time for this whole world of basic research. Do you intend for these other studies of yours to circle back and the current applications, as you alluded to, the kind of 2.0, 3.0? Or are you working toward a whole new class of therapeutics? Or are you just puttering around? I mean, who knows with you? You seem like you've got an active mind. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. No? So we definitely we definitely want to develop more focused 2.0, versions, 3.0 versions of the cell therapy products. And again, Parkinson's is a good example. We are very interested in the enteric nervous system, maybe develop a cell therapy for Hirschsprung disease. We are interested in a bunch of other cell products you now that we want to get into the clinic. I mentioned again, our big vision is really the, doing something for actually uh, also of cognition, and I think that's really kind of the, the next major big thing. What can you do? And you need to change the whole microenvironment to actually achieve that. And so I think that's going to be a really big long-term goal. But I really love the basic side. And I think that's in my lab, I like to have those two things together because I think they stimulate each other. 
like the basic thinking and the things you bump into it, suddenly you get completely new ideas how you might actually use that for, for applied applications. And sometimes they are very immediate. Again, our things we're playing around with metabolism, maturation, and so forth, you immediately can make better disease models, or you immediately could maybe make cells. But the patient, such a Parkinson's patient, doesn't have to be as patient because our cells are, you know, it's not snap your fingers. So once you, once you graft the cells, we expect it takes about one to two years for the cells to fully mature and have their full benefit. If you could do that in a month, that would be obviously nice. And how to do that, you need to understand maturation. So I think all these things, I think, are linked together. And I think it makes it just extremely exciting to have both parts in the lab. But I think I'm also very dependent on people in the lab. So you find no phenotypes in my lab that really are very interested in the super basic questions. And I think that's a lot of fun and keeps you young and <laughs> thinking and whatever, how you can push it. And then some people really have the vision to translate things. And I think that's kind of a nice balance you get and you get this cross fertilizations in lab meetings where again, you completely new things come up because you see connections that you would never see before. And so I kind of like to have those both sides in my lab. And I think that's something I probably want to keep going for the rest of my career because I think it's really fun. And it's also good for, I think, the trainees because we do so many things. It's impossible to keep that going forever in your lab. But then those trainees, you now when they have their own lab, they take that part to their own lab and they develop that specific aspect further. And I think that's often the most fun. When someone has a great idea, comes to the lab, has a nice paper, but then goes with that story and is very successful on their own. I think you're living the dream as an academic scientist. You know, you've got the solid foundation in basic science, but also working towards clinical translation for the, the work that you developed. And of course, you're spawning a new generation of academic scientists who are going to carry on your legacy and the work that your lab is doing. So congrats to you. I mean, this is the, as, a, as a junior PI, I hope to be in your shoes one day down the road. You know, we'll see if I get there. But I think a big part of your success has been MSK and being in an environment that really fosters your development as a as an academic scientist. You mentioned you started your own research program there in the early 2000s, and you've been there ever since. And we've actually had some rising stars from Memorial Sloan Kettering on the show here recently. Uh, Lydia Finley was on the show who's focused on cancer metabolism and, and cell fate. MSK, it's been a cancer research powerhouse for decades now, but there's no doubt that it's also become one of the best places in the world to be a stem cell biologist and under your leadership, of course. So talk a, a little bit about the growth that's happened at MSK over the years in the stem cell program, what you love about working there, and really the strength of the overall New York stem cell biology community. And I guess Dalen is a part of that too. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I mean, so, I mean, as you said, it was not always very obvious to choose Sloan Kettering as the place to do this type of research. And I think we really have to kind of thank the vision of many of the leaders, you no know, Harold Varmus at the time or Craig Thompson. Now we have again new leadership, but there was a tradition to really have amazing basic research that that has not necessarily anything to do with cancer. I mean, the best example I like is actually Hero Misenberg. He was like a PI or a PI, young PI. When I came here, I joined this, this department of Jim Rossman initially. And he literally at the time was the first to develop optogenetics in in Drosophila at the time, and you'd think, whoa, how is that <laughs> cancer relevant? But I mean, I think it's just amazing what, what they allowed to do, or Jim Rossman himself, you know, with the V-snares and the T-snares. It's also not necessarily cancer research, and he even got the Nobel Prize for some of the work he has already done there. So I think they had amazing, basing research over the time, and I think that really what, what kept me going here together is having access to you mentioned Dale, no, the Val Cornell and the Rockefeller. I mean, you have actually three major institutions on one very small spot, I think is also quite unique. And then with regard to building the center, I think it's just a matter of, of I mean, again, matter of the time. So, so for a while, there was a lot of excitement about stem cells. Now we had the Tri-Institutional Stem Cell Initiative, which is still kind of plugging along. But so where we actually got some 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 money you now for actually Mark Tomishima's facility at the time, making stem cell core, building up the pieces and attracting more and more people, now providing them the technical help. And so it kind of organically became a bigger and bigger community. And we started to have meetings across the institution. And so I think it became really a very nice effort. In addition, obviously we have to mention also 
NICEF, Susan Solomon, who was a, a major contribution to New York stem cell community, bringing there a lot of support for, for trainees and so forth. And so I think New York really has built into kind of a powerhouse in, in the stem cell field, and particularly also with regard to translating our ideas. I think it's actually a very good place to do that. So overall, I think I don't regret having stayed here for 20 years. I remember I had a few opportunities not to make it to Stanford or here. And I think that probably you could be successful at many different places, but we also have, have another secret opposite, which is my partner in crime, Vivian Tabor. We basically have worked together for many years with the chair of neurosurgery here. And I mean, that's another reason that we have to find a place that takes care of both of us and where we can do what you want to do. And I think that was, again, quite unique in New York City and particularly at Sloan Kettering, where we can realize our vision, some of it together, some of it separately, and, and really, yeah, have a successful career. Yes, I mean, MSK, all credit to the leadership there in reinventing the science at MSK, but it, they do it on your back, Lorenz and, and Vivian's back. I mean, no shade on you and your, your people over there, Arun, on the West Coast, but there's no other place like MSK, even within the Tri-Institute. Um, and I have to say, Lorenz, again, it is really a credit to you as a scientist. You know, it's a great assemblage of, of brilliant minds, but you've uh, you've led You've, you're you're a shining star even amongst those brilliant minds. I know I'm making you uncomfortable here, but you've heard it all before. You're going to hear it again. <laughs> it's true, though, man. It's true. You, you've done great, and you're an inspiration. You've led with great grace um, and stubbornness. I think, you know, your endurance is another quality. I'll stop right there. Before we get to the end of the show, uh, I, I have to ask you a couple of these peripheral questions we have, which should be a bit of fun. First, uh, what do you think is the biggest misconception about science that you would like to resolve? I mean, from, from my side, it's probably the idea that you have to be kind of born as a scientist. You, know, you have to, from the beginning, be curious about every single detail and take out every insect in the garden and study everything and every stone and every rock. I mean, I think even so, maybe I, I had, even as a child, I was curious and so forth, but I really didn't predict to be a scientist. I mean, I want to be a doctor initially, you know, and probably a neurologist treating patients and so forth. And you, you just, you can get, you basically need, you need to kind of let yourself be open to ideas and to science. And I know many of the people who really started late in their career and had amazing careers. I mean, I always think of the example of Harold Varmus. He was a guy who actually had an English major, you know, was writing and so forth. And then came to the NIH, did some research, had no experience, and went on to win the Nobel Prize. No? So, I mean, I think it's you can have many different paths to do it. And I also think for young people, usually, that they always think, no, you look at the end of a career of somebody, and it looks maybe that they did so many things, how do you ever get there? But actually, it really happens step by step by step. You don't need to, in one step, become a professor with 20 people in the lab. No, you just do your thing, you follow your passion, and again, the passion can come at any stage. And I think that's, for me, very important so that you don't have this idea, oh, I'm not good enough as a scientist. I didn't do this and that. You just, if you have the passion for it, just go for it. Yeah, I mean, that's an inspiration for me, mid-career, that, yeah, it's not, it, you can always have another great idea. Uh, and that old antiquated archetype of the lone scientist or the the nerd from day one, I think uh, that that has been debunked. And I think it's in large part uh, you who broke the mold. So segue from that, as someone who broke the mold in their pursuit of science, uh, I have to ask, if you weren't a scientist, what do you think you would have done with your life? Yeah, I was thinking about this question a little bit, and I couldn't come to a complete agreement. <laughs> Too many other things I could see myself doing, but I mean, in general, I like to build things. So I like to build stem cells and tissues and so forth. But I also like to build other things. For example, again, I, I was fascinated by cars, for example, when I was young, and I like to build things and got sometimes need a little bit in trouble making some of my bikes go faster and so forth. So I, I like to build things and this the right art. So I could imagine to be like a designer of new car technology or an architect or things along those lines. I think that would be jobs I could easily imagine myself to get excited about similarly what we are doing now. We'll have to see whether it would similarly or less or more successful. 
But I think, again, similar to science, I think you could be also excited and, and successful in many other areas if you really have the passion for it. Well, I would love to see the car that you built, my friend. Uh, it might cause some neurodegenerative disease instead of carrying it, I'm afraid. Um, but worth worth a look in another life, perhaps. Uh, Lorenz, really, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the show today. As you said at the outset, it really all began with you. It came out of your lab, this podcast, but uh, all this translational impetus, I think, also started in large part with you. So it's nice to kind of close that circle here on the show and share that with the listeners. We, we really greatly appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. A lot of fun. Thanks. All right, y'all, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks again to Lorenz for joining us for this episode. He really is an icon in the field, and we really enjoyed uh, reflecting on his illustrious career with him. We hope you guys will enjoy us for the next episode in a couple of weeks where we'll have another icon in the field sharing their science with us. Thanks for listening.